Hi, my name is Jill. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 60, 1 through 3, and 19 through 22. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall go down no more, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall be all righteous. They shall possess the land forever." the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Nate. The New Testament reading is found in Colossians 1, 21 through 27. Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies with him in your minds which was shown by your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you before God as a people who are holy, faultless, and without blame. But you need to remain well-established and rooted in faith and not shift away from the hope given and the good news that you heard. This message has been preached throughout all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, became a servant of this good news. Now I'm happy to be suffering for you. I'm com- Completing what is missing from Christ's sufferings with my own body, I'm doing this for the sake of, of his body, which is the church. I became a servant of the church by God's commission, which was given to me for you in order to complete God's word. I'm completing it with a secret plan that has been hidden for ages and generations, but now which has been revealed to his holy people. God wanted to make the glorious riches of this secret plan known among the Gentiles, which is Christ living in you, the hope of glory. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Amy. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in John 1, 14 to 18. The word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, crying out, this is the one of whom I said, He who comes after me is greater than me, because he existed before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. As the law was given through Moses, so grace and truth came into being through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made God known. The Gospel of the Lord. Just remain standing. We're going to pray here in a moment. Good morning, everyone. My name's Glenn Packiam. I'm the pastor here. Let's join together in a word of prayer. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now that as we hear it being taught, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would breathe it into our hearts. Open up our eyes. Open up our ears. Open up our minds and our hearts that we would see Jesus, that we would hear your voice we would come to understand and to believe and to be changed into his likeness. We pray these things 
in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. When my wife and I had our first child about 13 years ago, a good friend uh, recommended something to us. They said, you should start journaling all these things uh, that you see her doing even as a newborn. And so we thought that was good advice. And we started writing some stuff down, you know, uh, how she slept or rather didn't uh, sleep and, and the, the, the effort that it took to rock her and all of this stuff. And we would journal things. And because she was our first, we wrote with incredible detail. And then every parent who's had more than one child knows you start doing less and less of that. So as we had more kids, not only did their journals kind of uh, become more sparse, but even Sophia, our oldest, uh, her book became more sparse. But we would try to do it at least a couple times a year. And even as she got older as a toddler and then a little older than that and into school and all of that. And we'd write down things like these are the things you used to say or these are the funny ways you used to play. And these were some of, the, uh, these were some of your favorite things that you said when you were six and all of that. And so this year when she turned 13, uh, Holly and I decided that we'd let her read the journal for the very first time. Now our plan is to give it to her when she's 18 and it'll be hers to keep. But we thought becoming a teenager, you know, sometimes those can be turbulent years. Your sense of self and even your sense of identity can feel like it's under attack. And so we wanted her to know what her mom and dad have seen in her since the beginning. And uh, we took her out to brunch and we gave her the journal and she knew, you know, it existed, but it was always like, you know, you can't read it. And so now when she, when she began to read it, her eyes were just, you know, lit up and she's devouring every page and she would start smiling and laughing. And there were stories in there about how she wanted to try to be a worship leader at four years old and how she was telling stories and then how she was guiding the playtime of the other siblings and all of this stuff. And she was just delighting in it, you know. And I thought, what a gift to be told your own story. And sometimes all of us, even as adults, maybe especially as adults, every once in a while we need to pause and say, somebody tell me my story again. Who am I? Where did it come from? Where, where did I begin? Where am I now? Where am I heading? What's the past, present, and future? And wouldn't it be great if it wasn't just another human being or a friend or even a parent, as wonderful as that is, wouldn't it be great if God told you your own story? What would it be like if God said, come here for a minute, sit down on my lap, if we could imagine this, and say, I want to tell you your own story. What would it be like for God to tell you your story? I think that that's a little bit of what Paul is doing to the young Christians here in Colossae. We're in the series through the book of Colossians. This is week three of the series, and as we've begun the series, we've pointed out that, that this is a group of people in a town that is sort of an overlooked town. Colossae once had its prime. It's sort of past its prime now. There were bigger and better cities now go, going on, uh, Laodicea, Hierapolis. And so Colossae was sort of like, yeah, yeah, we remember you a few hundred years ago, but you know, we've moved on. So not only did it have sort of that stigma, but there's also this sort of young, small group of Christians that had begun there in Colossae because one of Paul's associates had taken the gospel to them. And Paul is in prison, and he's heard about these young, this young church. He's heard about their faith, and he wants to say something that will encourage them. And so Paul begins by praying for them, and then Paul be, continues by worshiping Jesus out loud in front of them, telling them who Jesus is. And now, at the end of what we call chapter one, there were no chapter or verse markings when Paul was writing this. It's just one long sort of letter. And now, toward the end of this, this first section here, if you will, 
Paul starts to tell them their own story. He starts to say to them, this is how God wants to tell you your story. And just like a parent saying to a teenager, you're going to need to know your own story as you, in order to withstand the assaults against who you are. You get the sense that Paul, his heart for these young Christians is to say, guys, I want to remind you of how God is telling your story so that you can make it. And this is how he begins. Verse 21. Paul says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, Paul, if you're going to start by telling people their story, maybe soften it up a little. You know, maybe say, you know, you once were not doing so hot. You know, maybe some euphemisms. I mean, but you're going straight for it. You were once alienated and hostile in your mind. I like the way the a common English Bible translates it. It says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies with him in your minds. That's such a key phrase. In your minds, you were enemies with him, which was shown by your evil actions. So in other words, this is who you were. Who you were, you were alienated from God, and you were hostile toward him, or the way the other translation put it, you were an enemy with God in your own mind. You imagined it. God was this scary, mean being in the cosmos, and you had to be sure to, to, to escape his wrath. And so then you began acting in evil ways. Now, I want to point something out to you. This is the sequence Paul uses. But don't we often think it works in reverse? This is how it goes in our minds. We think God had a bunch of rules. We started acting in evil ways. We broke the rules. And therefore, God was hostile toward us, actually. And then, as a result, we were alienated from God. Isn't that how we think the story goes? We think we did bad stuff. God was like, get away from me, my enemy. And we're like, oh, forget it. I didn't, want, I didn't like you anyway. Right? Something like that. And Paul says, that's not how the story goes. The story goes that you began to be, you're alienated, you're distanced from God. You're like Adam and Eve in the garden, hiding from God because you started to believe the lie that the serpent said that God actually doesn't have your good in mind. And so you thought, I've got I've to take things into my own hands and we've got to do stuff that, because God can't be trusted. And in your mind, you began to treat God like your enemy. Have you ever thought someone was your enemy when it turned out they were your best friend? Have you ever treated someone like, oh no, we got to be careful of this person, and then all of a sudden realize, actually, they're the greatest ally you could have asked for, for Harry Potter fans, not to give it away, but that's Snape. <laughs> that's the great drama. Is he an enemy or an ally? For every parent in the room, it's like trying to give medicine to an infant. Right? Have you ever, you remember this experience, some of you, your, your baby or your toddler or whatever has a fever, and you're like, okay, we want to stay out of the ER tonight, and so the only way to do this is if you've got to just take this cup of children's Motrin right now. And the baby, or, you know, 10-month-old, one-year-old, whatever, you know, they're like looking at you like, Rah! and they're already hot, and so you're touch against their skin, they're like, why are you torturing me. Your hands are so cold. They're like death itself, you know. And then you're, you're trying to rock them and calm them. And this is always where I failed as a dad. I'm trying to like use reasoning. And you know, there's no reasoning. 
with the thing. You can't say to them, this is good for you, right? And so Holly was so much better that she'd just find a way to just get the, the little ones to calm down, calm down, calm down enough to where the Motrin will actually go in their system and not end up being, you know, spat back up. And you think in those moments, we are like that baby. God is trying to do something for our own good. He's trying to bring us the cure to the infection of our own sin. But in our minds, he's our enemy. And so we, like this baby, start going, ah! And you know those, that moment, in that moment, you know, Jane was like this. She would look up at us and like, how could you? Why this orange sticky syrup, you know? And you're like, honey, this is for your own. But that's how we are with God. We're like, God, how could you? You are my enemy. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. The enmity was in your own mind. God was not against you. You were against him. God was not the one committed to your demise. You determined to live against him. And so this is who you were. But then in verse 22, he says, but now God has now reconciled us in the body of Christ Jesus, in his body of flesh, by his death, talking about Jesus, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God broke through while we were resisting while we were kicking and screaming, while we were enemies with him in our own minds, God broke through and came and died. Came and died for us. Came and suffered on our behalf. Came and said, listen, 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 you're headed towards judgment and death. Let me go ahead and face the judgment for you. You're headed towards destruction. Let me take it for you. In the body of Christ Jesus on the cross, God reconciled us. There was a young man in the 400s in North Africa by the name of Augustine. He went on to become the bishop of this area. And he he went on to write some remarkable theology, so much so that in many circles he's regarded as Saint Augustine because of the way he shaped Christian theology. But Augustine, as a young man, was running as far away from God as he could go. As far away. And we know his story because he tells his story in a sequence of prayers called the Confessions. And even as a piece of literature, it's a remarkable piece of literature, it's the first instance of a sort of spiritual memoir. And so if you're into memoirs, reading Augustine's Confessions is a brilliant a piece of literature to sort of see this, this new sort of form of describing your life's journey, but through the form of prayers. And Augustine describes his youthfulness, his young adulthood, as being one that was given over to as much lust and as much pleasure as he could find. In fact, he famously prayed, Lord, I want you to make me chaste, but not yet. Not done having all of this fun. And he describes God as breaking through when he wasn't even looking for it. One of the most beautiful passages in the Confessions, Augustine says, you called and cried out loud and you shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent and you put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant and I drew my breath and now pant after you. I tasted you and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. Isn't that beautiful? 
And he's actually the beginning of the passage. He says, late have I loved you. In other words, I was late to the party. I, I, was, I was just so consumed with looking for joy and pleasure. All of the, I was looking all the way out there. But you were inside, he says, knocking on the door. You broke through. In the words of that famous Keith Green song, your love broke through. One of the most powerful things about the gospel is that for Christians, the story is not about humanity's search for God. Every other religion frames it this way. The wise sage ascends on the mountain or disappears in the desert to contemplate truth, to find enlightenment, to look up from the mountaintop and survey all of human history and walk away with a great insight. Every religion is the story of a human being's quest for truth and for life and for love. But the Christian story begins with God searching for humanity. It's God in the Garden of Eden. It's God in the Garden of Eden who comes looking for Adam and Eve and says, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you hiding? And the same God who called Adam out of hiding is the same God who comes, Jesus Christ, the second person, the Son of God, who comes in human flesh to chase us down. Chase us down. And like Augustine said, I, I was blind. I was deaf. I didn't want to have anything to do with you. But you broke through. See, some of you are thinking, well, I, I don't know if I could ever find God. And I don't know if God would ever want to find me because I've got this kind of mess. And I've got this kind of mess. And I've said some pretty terrible things. And I've done some pretty awful things. And this is all a mess. And really, I think it's just better if I stay alienated, if I stay hostile, if I stay far away. And Paul says, no, you don't understand. God, the God who knows everything about you, he came anyway. Amen. He came anyway. The God who knew where you were. He came after you. And so, as God's telling you your story, your past is that you were alienated, hostile, doing evil things, but your present, who you are, you are reconciled. Amen. You are reconciled. You're there. You've been brought in. You've been restored. You're an insider to any of you who have ever felt like you're always on the outside looking in. You're marginalized. You're afraid. You're on the outside. Look, all of that is the story of human beings mistreating and excluding and oppressing one another. But there is one person, the God of the universe, Jesus Christ by name, who comes after you and says, you belong. You fit. You are, the, you, you are mine and I am yours. Amen. I think this is what Paul means when he says, in Jesus, all things fit together. And Paul's saying, it's because of Jesus, you're now reconciled. Could you imagine how this would change the way that you pray, change the way that you read your Bible, change the way that you come to church, change the way that you wake up on Monday mornings, that you don't wake up on Monday mornings and say, oh, God, so far away, you so easily provoked to wrath, I just, uh, just got to try to do my best. Instead of saying, the God who came after me? The God who suffered and in his own body bore my sin so that I can be reconciled. You know who I am? I'm reconciled. Amen. I'm not an enemy of God. I'm reconciled. Don't pray like you're an enemy of God. Don't read your Bible like you're an enemy of God. Don't pray. Don't, don't serve. Don't give. Don't live like you're a person on the outside looking in. Live like you're a child of God who's been reconciled with God. That's who you are. And then the story 
continues and Paul starts to talk to us about our future. Verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope. Somebody say hope. Hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Actually, Paul has talked about hope quite a bit already in his letter. Let's back up. Look at this in verse 5 and 6. He says, you have this faith and love because of the, say it out loud, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You previously heard about this hope through the true message, the good news, which has come to you. Paul can't talk about the gospel without also talking about hope. Paul can't talk about the good news without also talking about hope. And then verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Some of you have only heard a version of the gospel that fixates on the past. And so every gospel message you've heard is about, well, you dirty, rotten sinner, but I got good news, you can be forgiven. That's a part of the story. Paul begins with your past, but he finishes with your future. The gospel is not just the story of once you were and now you are. It's also the story of what you will be. That's what the good news wants to present to us. Not just forgiveness and not just reconciliation, but also the hope of glory. Amen. The hope of glory. And so when we ask ourselves who you will be, we've said who you are, who you were and who you are. Now who will you be? You will be glorious. 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 I want to pause here and take the next several moments and just unpack that phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And let's start with that last word, glory. What is glory? To the Greeks, glory was about fame, was about honor, was about winning great victories. The Romans had their own version of what glory was. To the Jews, glory had something to do with the very essence of who God is, the weightiness of his nature. What is Paul talking about when he says, glory is where you're heading? Your story is headed for glory. What does Paul mean when he says that? I think there's a whole sermon series in that. But to try to say it as simply as we can this morning, we'd say, to be glorified is to be made like Jesus. To be glorified is to be made like Jesus. That's as straightforwardly as we can say it. But let me say two more things about it. To be made like Jesus in two ways. Look at Colossians 1, verse 22. In verse 22, Paul says, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Who's going to present us? Jesus is, in order to present us. See, sometimes we get these binaries stuck in our minds, and it's like, first I do this, then Jesus will do it. First Jesus does this, now I'll do this. Jesus saves me, now I got to be holy. Paul says, we're going to talk about holiness, but I want you to know it's Jesus who's going to present you, right? So one part of glory is to be like Jesus in holiness. But then 
Previous to this text, earlier in this text, when he's singing this song about Jesus, the last part of verse 18, he says, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The firstborn from the dead is a funny phrase, isn't it? You're like, oh my goodness, this is like a sci-fi movie, it's like a zombie thing. I mean, what is this, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago in our, that word firstborn, there's that Greek word protokos, it sounds a little bit like the word that we get from it, prototype. Jesus is the beginning of a new kind of body, resurrected body. And so glory then is to be made like Jesus in holiness and in resurrected body. To be made like Jesus in holiness and in resurrected body. Now, some of you maybe grew up singing that old song. One fine morning when this life is over. I'll fly away. It's a terrible song. <laughs> and I know, I know it makes for great fiddle playing and banjo playing, and I've had jam sessions with that song, and it's great fun. It's just very campy. It's great. It's just not what the New Testament tells us is our hope. The New Testament does not say that our hope is evacuation. <laughs> the New Testament does not tell us that the, the glorious hope for which Christ died and was raised up is that you'll fly away. No. Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. That means what happened to Jesus will happen to you, Amen. to all who are in Christ. One fine morning, the heavens will be rent open and the Son of Man will descend. Heaven itself will come down and earth will be transformed and renewed and remade. One fine morning, every tear will be wiped away and death itself will be swallowed up in victory and we shall receive resurrection body. And so the creed says, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That's our hope. That's our hope. Not that God's going to get us out of here. Sorry, that was kind of a crappy life, you know. Your hope is glory. And glory is the completion of the story of salvation. Amen. Glory is God the creator and redeemer bringing it all to its glorious fulfillments. New creation, resurrection, that's where you're headed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we've got glory. What about this word hope? Hope's an interesting word because we don't even use that word consistently in English. Sometimes we'll say hope to speak of something that's really confident. I have a hope. Other times we'll use hope as just a synonym for wish. I hope it doesn't rain today because I was really hoping to take a walk, right? Hope is just sort of this wish. Sometimes we say hope and we really mean optimism. What is hope? Harvard psychologist Charles Snyder has done a lot of work in hope, and I relied on his work some in my own research. And Snyder basically says, hope is a mix of power and plan. When you feel like you have the power, and you feel like you know the plan. And so from a purely human perspective, hope develops when you, when you think, I can do this, and I know how. And so power and plan meet together. Now, if that's also what Christians mean by hope, you know, it's really bad news. 
Because if you say, my hope is my own power and my own plan, you'd say, well, I've seen what my power can do. Not much. And furthermore, in different parts of the New Testament, it says that without Christ, we're actually dead. Now, that makes things quite a bit worse. Because dead people don't have a lot of agency. They don't have any power. Dead people have no plans. Not to be trivial about this. But if that's the metaphor for what sin does to us, there is no power and there is no plan. So we could have all of this glory and then have none of the hope if it's about us. It's all glory. I want glory. Oh, who wants glory? I want glory. And you say, okay, well, then you just need to come up with the power and the plan. And you're like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And so Paul says, no, no, no. When I'm talking about hope, I'm not talking about what you can do. I'm talking about what Christ can do. And you say, well, wait a, wait a second, Glenn. I, I was paying attention. I caught in verse 22 and 23, there's a big, gigantic two-letter word, if. Right? It says it right there. Verse 22, start there with me. It says, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And everybody say, if. Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard. And you're like, oh, no, there's an if. I've got to do this. There's nothing worse than not living up to your potential. Just ask Paxton Lynch. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. It's first round draft pick. Didn't happen. It's nothing worse than feel like I had this potential. What? Are you guys Paxton Lynch fans all of a sudden? Like, what, what are you owing for? Come on now. He's on the team. He's on the team. He's on the team. He's third string, but he's on the team. There's nothing worse than feeling like something was out there, but you, it was on you to get it, and you couldn't get it. But this if is not the kind of if we think of. It's more like this kind of if. You're going to produce apples if you're an apple tree. You're like, well, Okay. You're going to do this if, and you see this because later on, verse 29, Paul gives us a little insight into this. He said, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Isn't this so gloriously complex? <laughs> some Christians really want to simplify this, and so some people say, oh, it's all our works. We've got to do this. We've got to work, 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 work. Like, no, 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 it's not works. And so then we go over here. It's Jesus, 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 nothing for me to do. If there's nothing for us to do, there wouldn't be much left to Paul's letter. But Paul's going to say a lot more about how to put off and how to put on and how to practice things. So then you're like, well, which is it? My work, his work. Paul's like, I know, it's kind of complicated. I'm toiling and struggling with his energy that he powerfully works within me. The power of the gospel is Jesus <laughs> and how Jesus somehow returns power back to us by the Holy Spirit. And so you're like, Paul, are you working? He's like, oh, I'm working, but it's not really me. It's Christ who's working. Well, is it Christ's work? Christ is working. I thought you said you're working. I am working, but who's working? It's Christ's work. You're like, I'm so confused, <laughs> right? There's a mystery to this. We work because he's working. Elsewhere in Philippians, Paul will say, we'll work out our salvation, for it is God who works in us. And so somehow, it's Christ's power that returns power back to us, which leads us to the last part of the phrase, glory, hope, Christ in you. 
What a powerful thing for Paul to say that Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you. I was reading this week about the guys who invented microprocessing, the first microchips. 1958, 1959, two different inventors. They started you know, filing for their patents, and then they realized, oh, we're kind of doing the same thing. Let's sort of file together, and then it multiplied their impact. One guy went on to uh, do stuff with Texas Instruments. The other guy went on to create Intel. And in, in the early 60s, the first microchip was available to the public, and in, it was about as big as my pinky, and it had one transistor in it. One. One. Today at least at the date of this article, which is now a year ago, in a microchip the size of a penny, smaller than a penny, there are 125 million transistors in it. 125 million transistors in it. Most of us were like, I don't understand, what what is it? Right, but that's why Intel says, Intel inside, dun, 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 right? That's why they say that. And then their their, their slogan went on to go to, to say, look, at what's inside. And now Intel's latest slogan is experience what's inside. Why? Because they know when you look at this thing, you're like, what is this thing? Who can, why why is this thing cost so much money? You know, (laughs) right? And like, because this thing can do everything. This is the power inside. It reminds me of that Zoolander scene where they're like, the files are in the computer. You know, he's like, in the computer, you know, and they're like trying to hack at the desktop, like it's in the computer and they can't find it. Like, where are the files? Right. And people look at you as a Christian and you say, I've got the hope of glory in me. And they're like, no, no, you, you just, I mean, you look pretty normal, you know, like, no, I know, but I've got the hope of glory in me. And you're like, no, man, like you just. You're just like a regular person. You're like just a, you know, regular dude. It's like an investor guy. You're a teacher. You're an accountant. Yeah, you're a stay-at-home parent. I mean, eh. no, no, no. You can't, you can't cut me open and, and find it <laughs> like the files in the computer. But if you had spiritual eyes, you could see that the Christ, who is head over all of creation, the Christ through whom all things were made, The Christ in whom everything holds together. The Christ who is the firstborn from among the dead. The Christ who is preeminent and supreme over everything. It's that Christ that lives in me. And he's the hope of glory. He's the hope of glory. Paul will go on and talk about the community life together as a church. And Paul will go on to talk about important practices and spiritual disciplines. And all of those things are so wonderful. But friends, don't ever mistake those things for the hope of glory. The hope of glory for you is not the church. The hope of glory for you is not your community. It's not the meal group you're going to find today. The hope of glory is not the practices that you're going to learn. Those are all wonderful things. They're part of the journey. They're part of how Christ works. But the hope of glory is not on your efforts or your genius or your, your striving. The hope of glory is Christ in you. Christ in you. Christ in you. Christ who is the sovereign over creation, the Christ who is the sovereign over new creation. He's in you, and he's the hope of glory. And so this morning as we come to the Lord's table, we've just been told our story. We've just been reminded that once we were far away, 
hostile to God in our own minds, living in an evil way. God has now reconciled us and we're headed towards glory because of Jesus. Some of you might find it difficult to believe this because you're caught in the trap of shame. It's hard to break out of it. Brene Brown, the researcher and social work um, speaker, has spoken a lot about shame and One of the things she says we need to break out of the shame spiral is that we need to talk to ourselves like you would talk to a loved one. That's nice. That's good advice. And then secondly, she says you you need to, you know, find someone you can trust. That's great. That's really good. And then thirdly, you need to be able to tell your story. I think that's all very helpful stuff. I just think it has its limits. I just think it has its limits. Because there are moments when you'll say, I don't know how to talk to myself like I'm someone I love. Because I don't like this. I don't like what I've done. And you, there are moments when you'll say, I, I, it doesn't work. I, I don't have anyone that I can trust. And then there might be moments when you say, well, I, I, I don't even know how to tell my story. I don't want to tell my story. And the gospel gives us this language of saying, it's okay. It's okay. There's a God who made you, who already knows, already knows, and already came, and already suffered, and already died, and already made a way for you to be reconciled, and wants to set you on a path toward glory. And so all of that other stuff is so great. But this morning, I want you to hear Jesus telling you your story, reminding you where you've come from who you are now, and where you're headed to, to break, break the cycle of shame, break the bondage of fear and condemnation, and remind you, you're a child of God, and you're headed for glory. Would you bow your heads with me?